0: Welcome to Beyond Generations, a journey of a Japanese student in Seattle discovering what happened to Japanese American people in Seattle during World War II, and how people have been trying to acknowledge, understand, and learn from it, and figure out how to connect it to the future. I am your host, Monica. Do you know a book called Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet? It's a novel. It's a sweet love story between a Chinese-American boy, Henry, and a Japanese-American girl, Keiko. It was in 1942. The boy was living in Chinatown in Seattle and the girl in Nihonmachi, or Japantown. Their lives, as well as their childhood love, became at the mercy of the war especially when Keiko and her family were sent to the incarceration camps, just like other 120,000 Japanese-Americans were. Once published in 2009, the novel spent two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list and won numerous awards, and it is now read widely in schools all across the country. Also, it has become the book to read among people in the Japanese-American community in Seattle and anybody who is interested in the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. In this episode, the author Jamie Ford will talk about his love for Seattle's International District, what motivated him to write this story, and why it is important for him to keep telling this story. He will also tell us why award-winning poet, Russell Inada, used to make breakfast for him as a child, and if there is a model for the main character Keiko. Here is Jamie Ford, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet.
1: Thank you, Jamie-san, for being here today.
2: That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. So I, I was actually at the Panama Hotel yesterday. And after that, I walked around the International District in a drizzling rain.
2: Oh, no. So it
1: was a very Seattle-like Sunday, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> okay. So have you recently been to Seattle?
2: Yeah, when was yeah? I'm I'm there so often that I often forget when I was there. I'm usually there seven or eight times a year. I'm there next month oh, okay. uh, for two things: um, one for the Wing Luke Museum, and then another thing for uh, it's like a literary conference. Plus, plus I still have family there, and so often I just go out there just to see family. Oh, I see.
1: Okay, so. You yourself spent part of your childhood in here in Seattle, right?
2: I did. I grew up in the greater Seattle area, and I we moved around quite a bit. And then I later, you know, I went to I went to uh, college in Seattle. I I lived there for a few years after, and then and then I left. And now I'm now I'm here in Montana these days.
1: Mm, I see. So you you said you spent some time uh, of your childhood in Seattle, right? So how was your your childhood like? You know, how was your family like? Mm. Your your like your grandparents on your father's side was both Chinese Americans?
2: Yeah, my my name confuses people. Um my dad was Chinese, uh 100 percent Chinese, spoke Cantonese fluently, went to Chinese school after public school as a little boy. Um and so, you know, I have Chinese grandparents, um, Chinese great grandparents. Um my great grandfather came to this country around 1865. And um, he worked as a laborer. He worked in the mining industry in Nevada. And his name was Min Chung. And he changed his name to William Ford. And that's how I got the last name Ford. Um, Yeah, people often assume that my my father's Caucasian, My, my mother must have been Asian, but it's the opposite of that. And I, you know, I grew up in a kind of a typical Chinese American household. Like if you walked into our house, you would know we're Chinese <laughs> just because the the artwork on the walls and the type of furniture we have. And, um, you know, my, uh, that was my upbringing, but I'm fourth generation. So, you know, I've, my family's been here for a long time. So we don't have, like, it's interesting in my family, um, None of my relatives uh, had a problem with my dad marrying a Caucasian woman or his cousin marrying a Japanese woman. Because, yeah, because really? yeah, we were here for, for, since the 1800s. So we don't have a uh, we don't have a personal memory of World War Two, of, of that conflict affecting us. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I had a, a very unique childhood, I think. And it wasn't very common for a Chinese-American man to have a Caucasian wife in the 60s. Um, in fact, it, it was illegal in, in many states um, until 1967. Um, and so, yeah, there's. I, I take it for granted that my childhood was fairly unique. Um, and I think many mixed-race children uh that's their normal and then they don't realize how special that is or unique that is until they go to their um their friends who are their families are of european ancestry and the culture has been i would say diluted a bit um into the american melting pot whereas in my family we still have a lot of you know distinctions that are that are very obvious Mm, okay so
1: uh, what kind of uh, like a Chinese cultural influence did you have as a kid
2: yeah my, my dad ran a Chinese restaurant so um I you know if you go to a, a Chinese restaurant and you see little kids running around that was me as a child uh, my grandfather taught martial arts um I think in you know really one of the most memorable you know moments of my of my childhood were when we would have the big banquets for like my my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, my, you know, my grandfather's 80th birthday, um, these huge banquets in in the international district. Um, unfortunately, had a restaurant that's no longer there anymore, but, you know, with the eight-course dinner and the 50, 60 relatives. And of course, I was a little kid, so everyone was giving me, you know, all the adults are giving me Lycee, the little red envelopes with money. Um, and so I do have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of fondness for Seattle's international district. Uh, my dad went to school there, Chinese school, and my grandparents lived up on Beacon Hill. And it's just a community that I, I've always felt very um, comfortable. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, when I'm, I'm, I'm half Chinese, and when I went to high school, there really weren't that many um, non-white kids or mixed race kids at all. And so I never felt entirely comfortable in my own skin. It wasn't until I left Seattle and I moved to Hawaii and I lived there for six years and suddenly everybody looks like me and everyone is mixed race. And then I really, really kind of found myself in that environment. And then, you know, when I came back to the mainland, um, it definitely changed my my outlook and my perspective.
1: How did you feel about your Chinese ancestry uh, as a child? Did you think about it a lot or your Totally didn't think about it.
2: I think like, like, I shouldn't speak for for all little kids of my generation, but the times when I really noticed was around food. And so I, I have friends that I've known for 40 years, and they will never let me forget the time that they, you know, came to my grandparents' house with me. And my grandparents served, you know, some very um, unusual food for them that kind of freaked them out and those are those moments where i realized oh not everybody eats chicken feet or not not everybody you know eats um you know something a little bit uh white people might consider exotic if you will um that's Mm -hmm. kind of a charged word but or like cuttlefish which is you know dried cuttlefish chili pepper cuttlefish i would eat that in school and kids it's basically it's like squid jerky which freaked everybody out and i i just grew up eating it so i didn't understand why people were um, were shocked by this um and so for the most part um you know it was just my normal to be at the restaurant it was just my normal to um, go to you know big chinese dinners and and spend time with my my grandparents my union as i called them in cantonese um that was just my normal really it wasn't until maybe i went to college um and there was a there was a time it's interesting now i visit a lot of colleges um for book events and most universities and colleges will have a center for diversity where people of different cultures can come get together um you know commune with each other, but also share that culture with everybody else. And it's these are wonderful places. But when I went to college, we didn't have those. Um, And I remember walking across the campus, this wide open park, and I saw another boy, and he looked just like me. And then he saw me and saw that I looked just like him. And we just sort of crossed and stood in front of each other. We're just like, Right. Right. We're, we're like like we totally identified with each other. And he was uh, he was half Korean. I'm half Chinese. And we both just kind of laughed how um, we realized most of the kids on campus, you know, didn't look like us and that we were fairly unique. Um, did,
1: did you did you make friends with him? With yes,
2: him? I did. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. And it was. um and now that university has a center for diversity, but it's funny. I, I was at, uh, Oh, I think it was the university of central Michigan. And I was, they were hosting an event for me and their center for diversity and a, a Caucasian kid came up to the director. Um, who was a, a, a black woman and said, how come we don't have, you know, how come we don't have centers for white people? And she said, you do. It's called a frat house and you've had them for 200 years, What's you know, frat or a, house? A fraternity or a oh, soror-
1: fraternity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sigma something, something. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh. yeah. And she, she said it with a with a few more colorful adjectives. Um, I'm saying it politely, but she was really upset. She just said, yes, they, you, you had centers for white people for 200 years. It's called a sorority or a fraternity house that did not allow members of color um sometimes not even you know uh jewish students to to join those um you know those places and so i don't know over the course of my life you just you you gather an awareness of you know what the world is like now and appreciate how it was for your parents and how different it was for your grandparents um and the different struggles that they had my my great-grandmother uh Loy Lee Ford was the first Chinese woman to own property in the state of Nevada, um, and it was really hard for, you know, for Chinese people to to own property back then. It was hard for most minorities to get out of the lower class and reach the middle class in in the United States. Um, and again, these are things I, I wasn't aware of as a as a kid, but as a as a young adult, and then certainly as a as a grown man, I can look back and and recognize all of those moments and all the differences and all the changes.
1: So, so you have never been like bullied being a like Chinese American boy, just like Henry was in the book.
2: Um, I was bullied as an adult. This is the funny thing. Um, Because my dad taught martial arts when I was a little kid, I don't think people messed you know i don't think people picked on me because my dad was a tough guy he taught police officers self defense um i was i was also very tall for my age um and so that helped i had some kids call me you know a chink and even in grade school it didn't even really bother me i just looked at those kids with pity i thought wow if if you if you're trying to put me down you must be really sad and pathetic and lonely. <laughs> like I just, like I didn't, I didn't fight back. I just, I just laughed and walked away. But six, seven years ago, I I did do a book event in Highland Park, Texas as a grown man. And I had high school kids calling me a chink. Um, I had a I I I visited more than a hundred high schools and this was the only bad experience I've ever had. I went to give a to give a talk, and I was giving a talk to like eighteen hundred students. And a, about a, a third of the way into the talk, every time I went to open my mouth, they would all clap and cheer. They wouldn't let me speak. They were just trolling me, and I, I wasn't sure what was going on. And so then I said, you know, okay, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I'm gonna give count to three. Everyone, scream and yell. Everyone did it. Okay, it's out of your system. I'm going to continue my lecture and they wouldn't let me speak. And I wasn't going to let them run me off the stage. So I just kept speaking and they kept clapping. And then they, I I made this point about the Japanese internment and they, no one said anything. And then I said, thank you for, you know, not cheering the Japanese internment. And then they all cheered the Japanese internment. Um, and so I left and I got back to my hotel room and I started getting all these emails from all the marginalized students in that school. They emailed me and said, this is like my, this happens to me every day. This is my life. they the, the you know, a, a queer boy emailed me and, and, you know, was just so upset. Um, there was a girl who was overweight and she said, they tell me to kill myself every day. Um, and so I, and and they all said, please don't say anything because they'll know who, who I am. And so I didn't say anything about them, but I wrote this essay about my experience. I posted it online and then I got on the plane to go home. And when I had my layover in Minnesota, it had blown up and I had TV stations contacting me. And it it became this big thing. And then I got all these, you know, official apologies from uh you know the school superintendent and the the state senator. Um I also had parents who you know were sending me emails just threatening violence, you know, they wanted to hurt me. Um and it's it funny because the parents um the parents weren't there and they only heard what happened through their young juveniles (laughs) mouth so um what some of these students told the parents was that I did was not true and so they somehow blamed me and so these parents wanted to threaten me um it was just this big ridiculous thing um but it went it went mega viral and it made that school the ugliness of that school was revealed to the entire nation.
1: To me, it sounds very sad. How did you feel about it? You know, now that you're an adult, do you know how to deal with it? But how did you feel as a person?
2: I was... I, I was... I was... I was... every emotion all at once. I mean, I was very upset. I was very angry. But I was very... I was more concerned for the, like, I got to go on a plane, get on a plane and go home. My heart broke for the kids who are still there that can't go anywhere. Um, And that was, that was so sad, even as they were being so unkind to me, I didn't want to get even. I was still looking out for these, uh, you know, these students that they could, they could ruin their whole career if... You know someone posts all of their racial slurs um, or sends them to the colleges that they're applying to get into um i mean really could have ruined the lives of some of these kids um and i didn't want that to happen either so i i just had all of these you know i, I was angry but i was also um you know i felt compassion for the kids that are still there um because these kids didn't come they weren't born with these racist ideas it came from their parents. And so, you know, it's, I blame the parents um, as much as the children. Those That attitude isn't going to survive in the future. Um, it, it was heartening. Four years later, the freshmen that were in that school when this happened, their senior year, they put all the students of color, put together a video for the the faculty and the school board of all of their lists of demands of the changes that they want to see happen in that school. And so I I feel like if that hadn't happened to me, then they wouldn't have felt emboldened and empowered to do that. So uh, I think there was a happy uh, outcome in the long run.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely.
2: It was an interesting episode in my career.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that episode. Um, let me go back to the book a little bit. <laughs> okay. So about the uh, your um, debut novel, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. But before I go on to that, how do you feel about people talking about your debut book a lot, although you have published, you know, three other books already? Do you like? Do you kind of a little bit? Tired of it or do you I don't know how do you feel about it? It
2: it took me a while to to come to grips with success. Um, because that my first book, Hotel, it had a zeitgeist moment. It it blew up, it became huge. And then my next books did not. They they were bestsellers, but they weren't of the same magnitude. And I I didn't know how to feel about that. It it stressed me out it disappointed me with my other books and yet i really liked these other books you know even more than my first book and then i i just had to realize that as an author i can only control my relationship to my work and my relationship to readers but i can't control the relationship of readers to my work that's out of my hands and you can't manufacture a zeitgeist moment. I see publishers trying to do it. They put all this marketing and uh, and money uh, towards trying to make a book blow up. And it just doesn't happen. The book has to, um, so many publishers try to work on these viral campaigns for a book with sometimes forgetting that the most viral component is the book itself. and And so that, you know, coming to grips with that and And that, that helped me. It freed me up to just say, okay, I had this big book. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I'm happy. And I'm going to write other things. Um, and my, my latest book then had a little zeitgeist moment too and blew up. And then I'm like, oh no, it's happened again. Um, which is, which is good, but it's also, it, it does conjure up those, those feelings of like, suddenly a million spotlights are on you. And I thought I was really used to it, Um, but I think it's different with every single book. Okay. As far as lots of people reading it and schools and it being in all these different languages, that's um, that's fine. I I I honestly don't think about it a lot. And it, it helps that I live in Montana. I live in a small town. I don't have a community of writers here that I compare myself to.
1: What was your motivation to write this story? Oh, I've, I've tried to... My motivation,
2: as the years go by, I have a better understand, understanding of where I was.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting.
2: I, I do feel that my writing career began when I wrote my parents' obituaries. Once I lost my parents, then I had an emotional well to draw from. I had a I had a different emotional point of view. And suddenly my you know my stories um came alive emotionally on the page. And really when my dad passed away, um I felt cut off from my from my Chinese American heritage. And also just had a lot of unanswered questions. You know, I you know the, one of the big regrets of my life is that I didn't I didn't ask my parents enough questions about their own childhoods and you know once my dad was gone I, I couldn't get answers to all of these questions and so I was doing research into Seattle at the time uh this time of his childhood and my dad wore one of those buttons one of those I am Chinese buttons that Henry wears in the book I I wrote the book as kind of a love letter to the international district, which is a neighborhood that I'm very fond of, that I feel is often neglected by the city of Seattle. Um, Historically, it's horribly neglected. Um, There's all this economic vitality and they just sort of ignore this this neighborhood. Um, And I wanted to, you know, kind of honor my Chinese heritage um, and explore that. But also, I liked writing a book that, you know, that that's pan Asian, it's not just Chinese American, it's Chinese American and Japanese American. And that was my dad's experience of going to school with Filipino kids and Japanese kids and black kids. And, you know, the Bailey Gatzert was the elementary school that he went to at the time was one of the most diverse elementary schools in the country as far as you know Native American kids just it was very very diverse and I think um, even in Seattle at the time that I wrote the book most Caucasian people just lump Chinese Japanese Korean all together you know into one homogenized group and there's such distinctly different cultures and identities, um, not just language. Um, and so I I just wanted to explore that a bit.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, tell me about the time when you were doing research about Seattle's Japantown and Chinatown. Uh, in So during 1940s and 1980s, right? Th- those times are in your book
2: the 80s was easy because that's the era i grew up in in seattle so that was just memory um for the 40s you know i i mean there's a ton of nonfiction books um that you know most people if you if you name them i've read them um but i also joined den show which is based in seattle that records the oral history and through den show i was able to watch tons of interviews um to read journals and diary entries Um, the wing luke asian museum in seattle i did a lot of research there in their archives Um, and i'm I'm now on the board of directors there so um that's i the the wing luke has been part of my life for you know the last 20 years Um, i had been to Minidoka, idaho Mm -hmm. um and i had seen and now there's a, a national park site and there's a small interpretive center but back then, you just had to find your way there on the internet and know what you're looking for. And then there was, because it was private land owned by a farmer, and there was a little bit of a stone gatehouse, um, and not a lot there. There's a root cellar and, and things like that. And now there's there's a lot of things there. But I had been there. Um, surprisingly, um, I the, the first person to read. The Well, the first person to read the draft of the novel was my wife, but the second person uh, was a man named Lawson Anada. And he, at the time, he was Oregon's poet laureate. And as a child, um, one of my best friends was a boy named Toddie Anada. And Lawson was his father. And so I spent lots of sleepovers at the Anada's house, and I had no idea what his dad did. I, I knew he was a writer.
1: You shouldn't. You, you should, kids don't care, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, I knew he was a writer because he had a typewriter and he worked from home. But I, I thought I didn't know. You know, I'm a little kid. He he was just the dad that made us breakfast in the morning and told us ghost stories at night. And he's really cool. Um, but as I was doing this research, I found all these books of poetry written by Lawson Anata about his internment experience. And so then... I really, I really needed someone who had been in Japanese American internment camp to read my manuscript and just to let me know if I'm doing a good job. And so I, I reached out to Lawson. He remembered me. He loved that I became a writer. He's so, I mean, he's a really cool dude. He's, I mean, he's just, yeah, he's, he's so cool. He's like the definition of cool.
1: What kind of feedback did you get from Lawson Inada-san?
2: Oh, I sent it to him. He absolutely loved it. He said, this is going to be an airport book. This is going to be one of those books that you see everywhere. And Lawson spent time in two different internment camps. And he thought I, I did a great job. And that made me feel better. It felt like, okay, I've, I've had um, this, you know, this blessing by the Pope, um, to so I can move forward. Um, but even then I was, you know, I was very nervous. And I'm, because I'm writing about someone else's experience it's It's not, I took great care to tell the story only from the point of view of a, Jap, of a Chinese American boy, because I felt that's a point of view, I can own. And I, I if I was going to tell the story and have characters be Japanese American, I wasn't super comfortable doing that. Um, and so I, I felt that my perspective was valid, and the story was important to tell. And I think it's also important to tell the story from a point of view that's not white. There's There have been some movies made about the Japanese internment, one in the 80s, and they they fall into that mode of the white savior, you know, like the, the white GI who falls in love with a Japanese woman, and he's the guy that saves the day. And I thought it was more interesting to have a story where the main characters are Chinese, Japanese, and black. And there's... There really is no main white character. Um, Mrs. Beatty is as, as close as we get to a, a main white character. And even even Mrs. Beatty, I don't ever say her ethnicity, which I find fascinating because when I visit schools in the South, they all assume Mrs. Beatty is black. And schools in the north assume that she's white because that's you know, that's the lunch ladies that they grew up with, I guess. Um and so I just I just thought it would be neat to tell a story, a, a coming-of-age story with a, a Chinese-American boy, a Japanese-American girl in a city of white people that think they're all the same. And that it could be, um, you know, entertaining, but also
1: educational. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, there's one question that is related to what you have just mm-hmm. said. Um, So there's one question I was going to ask you is, what were the advantages, not challenges, you might have had to write about the incarceration you or your family did not experience? Oh, Not the challenges, but the advantages.
2: Yeah, the advantages for me is not having such a heavy emotional connection to it. And I know in a lot of Japanese American homes, there was a generation um, that didn't want to talk about it um, for a variety of reasons, and and really only began to talk about it in the '80s with the you know the the redress, the reparations, and really the the sansei, you know, the third and and the yonsei, the third and fourth generation that wanted to know what happened to their grandparents, wanted to know what happened to their parents. Um, and and even even those that generation didn't have the same pain and loss associated with the internment. And so I could I could write about it with some of the distance of a, of a researcher um, and not let, uh, you know, my, my internal dialogue take over.
1: Mm, I see. Uh, One of the reasons why I asked you this question was that I interviewed Jan Johnson, the Mm -hmm. owner of the Panama Hotel, and also the daughter of the former Susan, Mm -hmm. Susan Mm Hori. Yeah. And then Susan told me that, you know, Jan, since she has not gone through that experience of incarceration herself, That's a very reason why she could found like a historical value in the belongings that Japanese American people left before they were sent to the internment camps. And, uh, yeah, before that, I was trapped in the notion that Japanese American history has to be preserved and passed on to future generations by Japanese Americans or Japanese people. But John said, no, no, no. People are people, you know. And I was like, that was my like, aha moment.
0: The Panama Hotel is a real hotel that is still running today in Seattle's Nihon Machi. This is a hotel in the title of the book, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, and plays a crucial role in the story. The current owner, John Johnson, purchased the hotel in the 1980s from the former owner, Mr. Takashi Hori. Back in 1942, when Japanese Americans in Seattle, including Mr. Hori himself, were sent to the wartime incarceration camps, some of them left their belongings in the basement of the Panama Hotel because they were allowed to take only what they could carry. It was Jan's idea to make the items in the basement visible from its tea room as a reminder of what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II. Jan does not have any Japanese ancestry. I think
2: this is such a a, a tricky situation because um, the publishing industry right now gets very nervous when someone jumps out of their lane. So if... If, um, you know, if, if, a if a writer is white and they're going to write the main character is black or native American or something like that. Um, and, and I, and I understand that because you're writing about someone else's experience. It can feel very exploitive. And if you fail at it, you, you know, you, you deserve that failure. You deserve to be called out on it but i i do think if you can do it well you've pulled off a a, a, an act of empathy um and i see jan that way that jan didn't jan could have sold the panama hotel many years ago she's had so many offers and she wouldn't sell it because she is you know defending this bit of history um, another person might have just cashed in and said, "Oh, you're going to offer me twelve million dollars for this building? Great, I'll just take it and and leave." And so she said no to a lot of uh, you know a lot of big offers because she realized that she is the caretaker of someone else's important lived historical experience, um, and she's always open to you know whether it's journalists coming from Japan or school groups. I mean, she really she's an advocate for the history um being preserved and she's she's a very colorful woman she she's not for everyone <laughs> some people um can take jan in 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 large or small doses i i love her i think she's a, a, a wonderful person and she's been super kind to me and so i will always support her
1: how was it like when you first met john years ago right when you were doing the research
2: jan um well, now I have, you know, I have books that I've written. And so I can go to museums and historical societies and um, m- most of them already know me and I can have access to their archives and things like that.
1: You're, you're even invited.
2: Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I get invited to, to these things all the time. And I'm, I'm so, so grateful. Um, at the time, I didn't have a book published. So I just sounded like a crazy person. Um, and I had called Jen several times. And wanted to meet with her and I wanted to go into the basement. Um, and I could never I could never pin her down. So I actually flew to Seattle and I just sat in the tea room for an entire day. And Jan's just coming and going. And I, I told her, like, hi, I'm here for this. And then she's like, okay, I'll get to you. And then she's just gone. And then she's come, like an hour would pass. And then about three in the afternoon, she was just like, okay. What is your deal? Why are you here? And I said, I'm I'm writing a book. Um, I'd really like to go into the basement, if that's possible. And she said, um, we only do tours. Well, we do tours, but a minimum of eight people. And I said, okay, I will pay for eight. And, you and so I did. <laughs> so I went on the tour, just me and Jan. Um, she doesn't take people into the basement. On the on the tour, she goes to the Sento, uh, you know, the Japanese bath um the building places like that but we got talking and then she did take me into the basement and then we ended up spending like three hours in the basement
1: i mean what did you see how did you feel down there
2: um anything that i describe in the book was in the basement so perfume bottles uh baby shoes um old newspapers um i it felt uh, crass for me to go down there with a camera. So I just went down with a sketchbook and a, and a notebook. And so I just made notes. And that's just that's just me. I just felt like I I need to respect um that these are the remains of some people's lives. And I I'm not there as a history tourist.
1: Did you see a parasol?
2: <sighs> there is a parasol. Really? yeah there is a parasol um there's there's a but I mean truthfully there's a bunch of stuff that's not so interesting so there's like um you know boxes of of newspapers that are really old there are old bed frames and you know mattresses and things that you couldn't easily transport so like a sofa and chairs and things like that um so there's much more big things large things than smaller personal belongings but um but there's a ton and and the the basement is huge it's the entire footprint of that whole building and so it's you know it's like 60 by 60 it's a giant space um and yeah i was and and then jan i i kind of won her trust and then when the book i had an advanced copy of the book I sent it to her and she didn't read it. Um, and I'm like, well, they're publishing it. And she only read it after book clubs started coming into her. Degree. And then she's like, this book is just bringing all these people in. So I better read it. And then she read it and really liked it.
1: Do Do you still have contact with Jan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's
2: great. Yeah. I Often when I fly into Seattle, I I will go to the Panama first. And so I will just go and and stay at the Panama for a few hours, and and I and I stayed there. Um, the last time I was in Seattle, I, I stayed the night at the Panama.
1: Oh, in, intentionally you chose the Panama.
2: Yeah, I, I usually stay at the Panama at least once a year, and it just it's just nice to be there. Uh, I usually catch up with Jan. There's usually someone from the community that I'll run into in the tea room. Uh, last time I was there, it was Ron Chu who was. Uh, uh, former executive director of the Wing Luke. Um, and so it's just always nice to be there and see someone that I know and chat them up for a little bit.
1: Okay. So um, the novel, this novel was on the New York Times bestseller list for two and a half years. What do you think resonated with people, you know, about the book beyond the Japanese American community and Asian American community?
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, that's it's an interesting question because... I think my, my book arrived at this wonderful turning point in our culture. Um, I think the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and a little bit into the 80s, um, it Caucasian readers tended to read books written by Caucasian people about Caucasian people. And publishers looked at that, and they would see a black writer and they would say, Oh, you're a black person and you're writing for black people. Not not just saying you're a black person who's writing a book and it's a great book and lots of people should read it. Um the publishing industry had pushed people of color or and people of you know of different experiences into these uh you know, these these sectors. Um and I think we reached a point in our culture where we were we stopped doing that. Bookstores stopped. I mean uh, the, the classic example was and she was a saddle author is a author named Octavia Butler um science fiction author she was black and they would often take her books out of the science fiction section and put it put it in the what was the black section of the of the bookstore and we've we've stopped doing that as a culture and so now we have people you know this cross-pollinization of people reading about other people's experiences and i think that builds empathy i think it builds compassion i think it it really helps us and insulates us as a society from a lot of you know really bad things and so the book arrived i think at that time when there was an appetite among mainstream Caucasian book clubs to read about Afghanistan, to read about uh, India, to read about other experiences, and so that the timing was was really good. Also, um, I think people like love stories. That's I think that's the common thread. I think that's why the book does well in Brazil and does well in Italy and Norway. Um, I've been to Norway for two book tours and. There are not very many Asian people in Norway. It's okay, it a, yeah. it a monoculture of of you know white Nordic, beautiful people. but they they love this book there. And I think
1: oh, I think' that's it's, great,
2: yeah. I think it's if if you can read a book for entertainment, but if you're if you're learning something along the way, I think that it's it's a force multiplier. It it's a doubling effect. It gives people multiple reasons to enjoy the book, and I and I do think you know it's interesting. Some um, men read the book because they just men are often history buffs, and then a lot of people who are more emotionally driven read it because of the love story. So I, I just it just I got very very fortunate with the timing. I think I had a, a decent book at a very good time.
1: So you have been to all these countries and then, you know, you have visited schools across the country in the U.S. And then you even made educational materials like teacher's guide, you know, suggesting discussions and activities with students. So why is it important for you to tell this story? Oh, um.
2: I tend to say that some history is more important than other history. And in the United States, there is a real push for us to have patriotic history, It's which is ridiculous because we don't have patriotic math. We don't have patriotic you know, English class. But when it comes to history, they want to get an eagle on the cover of the book, And it's, you know, the Statue of Liberty and the flag and then anything that is critical of the United States. And we have a lot of things to be ashamed of. There are people that want to minimize those and not in some cases, not even mention them. And and you see that in Florida right now where the governor is um, uh, really going after all of these books that um, he feels are divisive they're not divisive they're just actually reporting on what happened during the civil rights movement in the United States to black people um but he doesn't want that to be in history books and so I, I do think it's important that it be taught in school because um, when my daughter was in school she came home with her history book from from high school and it was about this big and I went to the the index I found the Japanese American internment I found the page and it was like a half a page. And that was it. And that was the same amount of real estate that was given to the cotton gin, which is a little device to to process cotton. And I, if we forget who invented the cotton gin, we're not diminished as a society. But if we forget that we incarcerated one hundred and twenty thousand people, most of whom were American citizens, then we're losing something. And so I, I just i just I just think some history is more important than other history,
1: so is it? Uh... Is, is it your role as a storyteller to tell this story to as many people as as possible
2: it's true my my role is is as a storyteller um but i'm not a professional historian mm. um and i'm not a professional you know activist organization i'm just i'm just telling us a, a love story in this historical context but that that history is very important history and I want to make sure it's represented accurately. Um, and because of, I, I didn't, I didn't plan for the book to be in schools, but because (laughs) I know nobody does because, um, people found it had academic value. Then I, then I'm happy that that's, that's, um, that's not what I planned, but it's a wonderful outcome. And as a writer, I do write very emotional stories. Um, I and I I, I consider I, I I often say I consider myself someone in the compassion creation business. And I do think by writing uh emotional stories, you create compassion, you create empathy.
0: Hotel on the corner of Bitter and Sweet is a coming-of-age love story between a Chinese American boy Henry and a Japanese American girl Keiko when the countries of their ancestries were at war against each other. There are other characters who weave this rich story together with them, including Sheldon, who is a black saxophone player who would become Henry's lifelong friend, and Mrs. Beatty, who was a lunch lady at an all-white elementary school where Henry and Keiko nurtured their love and friendship.
1: Which do you think is my favorite character in the book? For you? Mm, just guess.
2: I'll say Sheldon.
1: <laughs> did you know?
2: Really? That's so great.
1: Sheldon, Ooh. that's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it <yeah. laughs> right because he has all the wisdoms. Yeah, and he, and he sees things other people don't see and. He tells it to people, and I think we need more Sheldon's in this world. You know. Yeah,
2: I like that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, so, why is there any reason why you included such a character, you know, as Sheldon?
2: Oh, I, I did because um, because of because of of, of redlining or uh, racial covenants on on housing in Seattle it pushed people of color to live in certain neighborhoods. And so you would have a neighborhood where, you know, there's an Italian American and a black American and Jewish American and Chinese American, all people of color living in this area. And so during World War II, there were, I think, 38 jazz clubs on South Jackson. And so you had this space that was used by, um, you know, Black people and Chinese people and Korean people and Japanese people, Filipino people. And I and I think if I didn't have Sheldon, then I would not be accurately representing the neighborhood because um the jazz scene was there and the Black Elks Club was a real place. Um and I, I have the exact location of where it used to be, um, and those kind of things. And I and I my my Chinese grandfather, my Ye, we would walk through Chinatown and he would point at these buildings and tell me about all the great jazz players that performed there. And I thought, that why here? Why not elsewhere? And as I grew up, I realized, you know, the the socioeconomic reasons for these neighborhoods were created. Um but yeah, I just I just needed him. I needed that part of the community represented. I think.
1: So, is there anything in the story in the book that is not well known, but people should know?
2: Well, it's. I I think it's. I don't know how well known it is now, um, but uh, the character of Oscar Holden uh, was was a real character, and some people don't realize that. that he was that he was real, um, and I contacted his daughter Grace and got permission to put um, to put Oscar in the book because uh, I, I had written a character that came from the South and and played the piano. A certain he was a stride piano player, so he played a certain type of way. And he left the South. He was, he was trying to get as far away from the South as possible, um, and was this terrific musician. And that was Oscar in in real life. And so I could have just made up a character, but I, since most people don't know about him, I, I thought it would be a way of honoring him and his family. Um, and then I, I went to, uh, his daughter, Grace's and she's passed away now, unfortunately, but her 80th birthday party and met, you know, all the Holdens who were so delighted that I put their grandfather and father in the book, um, just, just to memorialize him because he was an important important person in the Seattle music scene. Mm,
1: it must have meant a lot to his family as well, you know.
2: And and it is a family that is still full of musicians. And so, when I went to Grace's birthday party, um they had a uh, a microphone, a drum set, a piano, and just various family members would go up and perform, which was I mean there's just a super talented family. And Grace herself is a is a is a singer, was a singer.
1: You're you're so open to many different experiences and many different people.
2: Yeah, it's it's like um, people should try different foods. People should try different cultures. Um, Watch movies with subtitles. From I want to, and it's it's often as novelists or writers, we often get locked into one genre. And we become a genre snob it's like i'm only going to read these type of books and these ones are not worthy and i'm i'm not that i want to read the best of everything and see why people like it um and so i'll i i I think i do the same thing with food i try to do that with personal experiences um i just i just want to take the blinders off and a lot of times we live with these blinders that society puts on us um which i think is unfortunate
1: yeah, true, very true. Okay, thank you so much. I I I ask a lot of questions. Just curious, is there a model for Keiko Okabe? Like that, your your first love or, or something?
2: Um kinda, of, kind of. I had I had this first love in high school. Um she was not not Japanese, um, but it was this sort of this very sweet, innocent um relationship um, and and also I do have a friend named Keiko Akabe so I u- I used her name and I just and we were good friends we went and saw the Beastie Boys together it was a concert
1: okay so the name was from your good friend and yeah. probably like the image was from your first love in high school exactly yeah okay thank you yeah. thank you okay thank you so much this was almost like a nice talk <laughs> the Panama instead of the interview.
2: Yeah, it was a good conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet is the author's love letter to Seattle's International District. Jamie Ford did careful and thorough research to give this love story a correct historical context and to show respect to those people who were affected by the incarceration. It turned out that it became more than a love story that would touch the hearts of millions of people. It became something people can learn from about the Japanese-American incarceration during the war. He did not take his success all to himself, but instead He has been using his fame to raise awareness about this important part of American history and influence people to have empathy toward those who were affected by the incarceration. My journey of discovery of the Japanese-American incarceration during the war began from my curiosity to find out if the hotel in his book that stores belongings of Japanese-American people in Seattle really exists. It guided me through the journey of learning more about the incarceration. It took me to different places and allowed me to connect with many people who were willing to share their stories with incredible generosity. And finally, it took me to the book's author, Jamie Ford. Now, it has come full circle. I hope you have found some inspiration in my podcast. Everyone has a role to play. Anyone can take part in efforts, so that history will not repeat itself to anyone. Thank you so much for taking a journey of discovery with me. Special thanks to Jamie Fold, Music by Zakar Balaha. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of my podcast mini series Beyond Generations. Join our community on Instagram at beyondgenerations.seattle for updates and extras. Thank you so much for listening. This is Monica. You have been listening to Beyond Generations. My journey of discovery will continue.